FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about uh, today. News about the virus, a couple of interesting uh, political polls. We're going to catch up on some news from the coast that um, re- relates to the uh, uh, trial in the uh, death of the murder of, uh, or, or uh, alleged murder of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, we'll have that uh, later in the show. We'll talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington, where the U.S. Senate is back in session, and more. I've got a terrific panel of journalists today to do just that. It is Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my partner on today's show. How are you, Tamar? I, we haven't seen you in a little bit of time. I know, Bill. I was just saying how much I miss being here. So thanks for having me back. Yeah. Yeah, we're very glad you're back. Our listeners are glad you're uh, back as well. Um, We're joined by your colleague, Washington uh, Bureau reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tia Mitchell. Tia, you're going to get busy. The Senate's back in session, so the end of whatever time off you had while both the House and the Senate were off, although the House doesn't come back until next week, right? Yes. Um, it was a weird August recess, so wasn't the normal kind of month off that Congress normally enjoys, but we're getting back in the thick of it. Okay. All right. Better get some uh, workouts in before the whole thing starts getting crazy, because as we've discussed right before the show, we're going to run up against the debt ceiling in the next week or, or weeks or so. So things are really going to get crazy for your beat up there. Riley Bunch. Uh, GPB public policy reporter is back with us today. And Riley, uh, you're in the GPB radio studios. I haven't been there. At Thursday, I haven't talked about this on the air for a very long time uh, because there's no reason to. It's just the new reality. But Thursday, September 16th, will be 18 months since I started doing Political Rewind uh, remotely. But you're right there in the studio. How are you today, Riley? I'm doing good. You know, it's a little lonely in the studio by myself. I keep saying I can't wait till we can all get back in here, but who knows when that's going to be. <laughs> that's right. It's probably not going to be much before the uh, start of the new year, I suspect. And we're joined once again by Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, the nonprofit uh, newspaper, uh, which publishes down on the Savannah Coast online. Margaret, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty well, Bill. Thanks. Um, COVID is raging in our part of the state, so if you ignore that, all's well. Well, let's talk about that. Why don't you tell us, um, uh, let me start, we're, we're going to talk about COVID uh, at, on the show first. So let me first tell you, you know, the, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has been really playing up the importance of people being vaccinated. And uh, tomorrow, this morning, you're the top of the uh, paper above uh, the logo. Uh, the paper reports this, that in July of this year, there were 494 reported COVID-19 deaths. In August, there were 1,916 reported deaths. And now in September, from the 1st through the 13th, 262 deaths. 
Although the total number of hospitalizations and positive cases finally appears to be going down, this is still, as Margaret points out, down in Savannah, a raging virus tomorrow. Yeah, and I was actually in Savannah last week on assignment, um, and I was surprised, despite the mask mandate, how few people were wearing masks, even waiters and and baristas and stuff like that, um, you know, in bars and restaurants. And so, I mean, not like things are, are great in Atlanta either, but um, it, it didn't feel walking around like there was a mask mandate. How are things in Margaret? Tell us about the virus down there. Well, you know, I, we um, here in Chatham County, life is a little bit different than, than other counties along the coast. Uh, you know, our Mayor Van Johnson has been really on the forefront of mask mandates in the state of Georgia since last year. And uh, now since school is back in session, the public school system has been uh, struggling with with COVID safety protocols, um, the, our local board of education did vote to to have a mask mandate in the schools, but bus drivers have been on strike since last week because they don't feel like they are being adequately protected um, against uh, against the spread of COVID here. Down further south of us near Glen County, um, Glen County has actually had the um, had the the notoriety of being one of the the worst places in the country in terms of per capita um, COVID infections and and deaths. There's now a mobile morgue unit that has been um, that has been uh, is sitting there in Glen County because uh, you know deaths are, are skyrocketing. The Board of Education there voted against a mask mandate when school started, and so you know it's it's it's. It's kind of a, it's kind of a wild and scary place now. Lots of parents are are really worried about their kids. Uh, you know, the the leaders of government are also grinding to a halt. There have been jury trials that have been stopped because of COVID. Um, county buildings have been shut because of COVID. And so, as you mentioned, um, that that might affect one of the the biggest marquee um, trials that that we've all been waiting for for a long time, which will be the Ahmed Arbery state trial um, on uh, the murder case against his, his the three accused killers. Um, and we're going to talk a bit more about some news in the Arbery case a little bit later in the show, but thank you for giving us that uh, look at what's happening with COVID. Um, as the COVID uh, virus continues to rage across the state, um, we're seeing more and more protests uh, taking place at college campuses, state college campuses across the state of Georgia. Um, as many as 20 campuses yesterday had protests. The United Campus Workers of Georgia are uh, leading some of these efforts, and uh, they staged a die-in at Georgia State yesterday. Their concern, of course, is that the uh, chancellor, the Board of Regents, the University System of Georgia refuses to enact a mask mandate for everybody on the campuses, and there are a lot of concerns uh, that uh, the virus could get even more out of control as, uh, as classes continue. Um, Sam Burmes-Dawes talked yesterday to Dr. Wendy Simons, who is at Georgia State University, and uh, she told Sam about the reason for the protests going on at Georgia State. Let's listen. With trying to um, get out there and show the university community and our new president and hopefully the Board of Regents how angry we are at the decisions that have been made that give us a policy that is basically no policy at all. 
wear masks if you feel like it. Get vaccines if you feel like it. We're not allowed to say wear masks. We can say, please wear masks. We can say, I have a two-year-old at home or I have a parent who's immunocompromised. We are encouraged to reveal our personal lives to our students in the hope that they will, through some kind of compassion, wear masks. That's not a policy. Riley, we actually have uh, professors at a number of Georgia state schools resigning, saying that uh, for one reason or another, either because they're immunocompromised or they have someone in the family who is, they can't in good faith continue to teach at schools where uh, students come in, many of them unmasked. Um, and, and we have the, the acting chancellor, Teresa McCartney, continuing to say that the, the mask optional uh, approach that the Board of Regents is taking is preferable because to put a mandate in place uh, would be divisive on the campuses. Riley? Well, I think what we're seeing, you know, is this continued frustration from teachers in classrooms that they are not in control of their health in their classroom. They're not in control of how they're teaching to make themselves feel comfortable to keep students safe. And I think that goes back to the fact that the uh, University System of Georgia, it really reflects the state policies uh, around the pandemic because of the control of the governor over the Board of Regents, right? So we have a governor that has bucked mask mandates and um, vaccine requirements, you know, come out against them with the vaccine passport ban. Um, and we're going to see that reflected in the university system. And that those politics, they play down to the very level of the teachers in the classrooms. Yeah, I mean, Tamar, it is hard to look at this in terms of uh, the way uh, McCartney has handled this, way, way the Board of Regents has handled this, as anything but political. Yes. Yeah, I mean, 100%. There, as Riley mentioned, you know, this is a, a body, the Board of Regents, that's, uh, you know, closely tied to the governor. You know, their their appointees often, um, their their donors to governors, past and and present, and so it's really hard to separate uh, politics from anything that that they're doing. Um, Tia, um, the um, you pointed out to us that. Um, there was a terrific column that Maureen Downey, basically, who, who writes about education for the AJC, uh, put up on, on the website not too long ago. And she turns the column over to a professor named Scott Nelson, who essentially puts into a larger context the politics of COVID on the university campuses. And she, he, Scott Nelson takes this all the way back to... Governor Eugene Talmadge and how he, in fact, by interfering with the uh, uh, the university system, uh, was had the university systems uh, lose accreditation. You want to talk a little bit about that with us? Yeah, I found the column so fascinating. You know, as a relatively new, you know, I'm no longer a resident of Georgia, but as a relatively new person exposed to Georgia history, I've started working for the AJC just three years ago. So I learned a lot. It was interesting to see the history of the political influence on the Board of Regents that Tamar already mentioned and how far um, the board and the governor's office, of course, working in tandem, were willing to go to kind of push their political will 
even if it ran counter to, you know, counter to where where the world was going, if you will. You know, at that time, desegregation is what was taking over the nation, but the Board of Governors dug in because the governor was dug in on keeping the University of Georgia segregated. And we see that today because if you look at polling, vaccine mandates are not as unpopular amongst the general electorate as, you know, some Republican leaders in Republican states would lead you to believe. But it's clear that Governor Kemp is dug in against mandating the COVID-19 vaccine, and therefore the Board of Regents is following suit, and you see that trickling down to campuses, and that's running counter to what scientists and public health say is the best thing, not just vaccine mandates, but mask mandates. You know, the, the, the science tells us something clear, but the leaders in charge are not, not following that. So um, here's what Scott Nelson writes in terms of the, uh, the history. Um, he goes back to 1941, Governor Eugene Talmadge, who, of course, was a, an arch-segregationist, had no interest in any effort to integrate any aspect of life in Georgia. Um, and here's what Scott Nelson says. Then-Governor Eugene Talmadge helped shape a university system of Georgia's system rigidly controlled from the top. In the so-called cocking affair— Talmadge had the Board of Regents fire Walter Cocking, who was dean of the UGA College of Education, because he thought that Cocking supported integration, which Cocking, by the way, didn't. Um, and because of that, UGA lost its accreditation because the college accreditation body determined that the university was being operated by remote control through the governor's office. Um, this had enormous consequences if you were a student at UGA. Now, we're not going to see something similar happen with a mask mandate. There's not going to be any accreditation issue at stake here. But Margaret Scott Nelson makes the point that the Board of Regents, the governor's office, the chancellor have a history of polit political interference with the way the university system is run. Margaret? Yeah, the political history seems quite clear um, from that column, and of course, uh, the, the 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 procedures in which that the regents are appointed also seem to infuse politics in, into their their complexion as as a group. But let's not forget too that they all are proud Georgians themselves, and they are deeply rooted in their own communities. Whether it's Albany, whether it is Statesboro, where, whether it's here in Savannah, um, where Don Waters is, is one of the the uh, boards of regents, you know, they they are people who do take their their commitments to the state, and I think their their community activism um, very very personally. What I simply don't understand, though, because we don't have access as members of the public and taxpayers in Georgia, um, is how their discussions, um, what the flavor of those discussions look like. You know, people who um, who represent um, our, our diverse population, whether they themselves are people of color, whether they are decorated from the NAACP for their lifetime achievement um, in, in terms of racial um, integration, how are the flavor of those discussions happening? And as business owners, which most of them are, they're going to have to face, you know, the new federal regulations that the White House has put into place or is trying to put into place. You know, there's lots of different crevices here, and it would be, I think, a public service if someone would help people like us on, on this panel today, journalists, understand more about what those discussions look like. 
I think you just said something very important. I, this is really a focus on the on the acting chancellor, Theresa McCartney, who's been the spokesperson uh, on all of this and who's been the one who's been out front. You're right. We really don't know what the Board of Regents has discussed uh, privately about this matter. And so thank you very much for uh, pointing it out. Tomorrow, of course, all this leads to uh, something we should at least mention, which is the fact that the former governor, the former secretary of uh, agriculture in the Trump administration, Sonny Perdue, uh, apparently is still pushing to become the next chancellor of the university system of Georgia. Exactly. And and uh, all the people who oppose him say it's it's a nakedly political move if he were to be appointed to this uh, position. So, so as I mentioned, it's impossible to separate politics from all of this, even though, you know, this is supposed to be kind of an apolitical, um, or a, at least I guess a nonpartisan board. It, it's so hard when you're so cl- closely tied to, um, you know, the governor. And especially now, as we have our governor running for, for re-election, trying to win over or win back his base in the face of some pretty spirited opposition from Donald Trump. So impossible to separate the two. Um, before we move on, Riley, I was fascinated by a story in Kaiser Health News the other day, which pointed out uh, that in many reds, that there are red states beyond Georgia where mask mandates are being put in place. But they cited specifically what had happened in our neighbor, South Carolina. The state attorney general, uh, Alan Wilson, after the legislature uh, voted to deny that, that a campus could have a mask mandate, saying there aren't, we will not allow mask mandates. Uh, the attorney general sent a letter to the school, to the University of South Carolina's uh, president, saying you cannot put a mask mandate in place. Um, the state was sued uh, over that decision, and the South Carolina Supreme Court sided with the professors who brought the lawsuit and said, no, it's in the public interest. It's public health at stake here. So South Carolina has a court decision which has put a mask mandate in place right next door to us, Riley. Well, I think this kind of just is an illustration of the the push and pull we've seen throughout the entire pandemic. What can state leaders, what can federal leaders really impose on their residents, right? Can, can they make them wear masks? Can they not make them wear masks? Can Biden really make the, everyone get a vaccine, right? So we have this court ruling that ruled on the side of public health, which is really interesting. And I think that sets, you know, up a future precedent if we see court cases in Georgia. Margaret? Yeah, there's another crevice here that I think is worth exploring, which is the idea about public health and home rule and all how how those lines just are, are not sharp and clear anymore in the state of Georgia. Yes, there's other red states that are putting in mask mandates. Georgia is not one of them. One of the reasons why in a, in a, in a separate but maybe um, uh, um, similar public health situation, Governor Kemp has said he will not expand Medicaid for the state is that um, he mm-hmm. and, and his colleagues believe that it will cost Georgia more money once the federal money that has been allocated for expansion of Medicaid runs out. Here we are with the COVID vaccine, which is free for every American citizen and every American resident. Um, the uh, testing is free as well, as long as you have some sort of, of insurance paying for it. So there really isn't a financial reason why um, um, vaccines aren't mandated. 
And when you look at the EGA system writ large, you also see that other um, other vaccinations are mandated for students. Um, it's only COVID, um, the COVID-19 shot that is not yet. So lots of lots of different ways in which um, my head is spinning about this issue. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, uh, appropriate statement to make at this point. Let's do this. Um, let's get our first break of the show out of the way and then move on to talking a little bit about election uh, politics. But as we do that, uh, let me uh, let you know that tomorrow on Political Rewind, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about COVID with uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who, of course, has been uh, really out front among public health leaders, not just in Georgia, but across the country in helping advise the public about what's happening with the pandemic. And Amber Schmidtke, whose uh, blog, about COVID has crunched more data than I think just about anyone else out there and really has a handle on what's going on. So that will be on tomorrow's Political Rewind. In the meantime, let's get to our first break and come back with some interesting poll news on the show. GPB public policy reporter Riley Bunch, editor-in-chief of The Current, Margaret Coker, AJC Washington reporter Tia Mitchell and senior reporter at the AJC Tamar Hallerman are with us. Tamar, um, we've got a big poll now uh, of the GOP Senate race from Trafalgar, which is a Republican polling organization, tends to be a, a Republican polling organization. And I get it. The, the, the primary election is still months and months away, but it is pretty interesting to see that just a couple of weeks into his de declaration he's running for the U.S. Senate, Herschel Walker is at 70-plus percent in this poll. Nobody comes close. I mean, Gary Black is sitting at 6 percent. Tamar? Yeah. Almost 76 percent of the Republican primary yeah. voters polled said that they would support Herschel Walker. And so you see now, you know, we kept talking on this show forever how he was taking his sweet time before announcing anything. We were wondering, is he even going to do it at this point? And, you know, my colleague Greg Bluestein has written stories about how Herschel hasn't done any traditional campaign events. His his first event, he showed up at the UGA football game the other day to, to mark the uh, 50th anniversary of the 1980 team. But he hasn't had to do any of that kind of traditional back slapping, shaking hands on the road. And you can see why with, with a poll like this. And I would start getting really, really worried if I was Gary Black or Latham Sadler or Kelvin King, the, the three other uh, Republican men who are in the race right now. None of them could crack any higher than about 6.3%, which is what Gary Black got after more than a decade of uh, uh, public service. So certainly concerning. They're going to need to rush to define uh, Herschel Walker. There's plenty of skeletons in his closet. And... Um, you know, they don't have any time to waste. Tia, you, you know, yes, there's going to be a tax on Herschel Walker, but when you're sitting at 75, 76%, you got a long way to fall in those attacks before you're not going to win the nomination, Tia. And the truth of the matter is the attacks don't matter. Donald Trump was attacked in he still won primaries. He still is the leader of the Republican Party. And thus far, nothing we've heard about Herschel Walker surpasses the attacks that Donald Trump faces. So, um, again, that's so far. And not saying they're not bad, but my point is, if it wasn't enough to turn off Republican voters against Donald Trump, why do we think 
these attacks on Herschel Walker would be enough to turn off Trump endorsed, you know, a Trump endorsed candidate now, because these are the same folks who voted for Trump that we expect to vote for Herschel Walker. So it, barring what? something major, you know, Herschel Walker is the GOP nominee. I think this Riley is, and then Margaret. This is absolutely good and bad news for the GOP. I feel like um, because it, they have a clear primary favorite, right? I do think we will see Gary Black, Latham Sadler kind of step up. I mean, we have. We saw um, Gary Black uh, endorse the Buckhead secession movement, right? They're kind of trying to wiggle their way in a little bit. Um, but the the concern wasn't if Herschel Walker will win the primary, it's will he be able to drum up enough grassroots support um, during the actual election to beat Senator Reverend Warnock, right? And that's the concern that if he continues on this path, this where he's he's not really doing policy, he's not really doing the on the ground, you know, handshaking um, with locals across the state, will he be able to drum up those big numbers? So I think this is a good and bad indication for the Republican Party. Margaret? Um, I'll preface this by saying I'm a huge football fan. I, my husband is his high school <laughs> former quarterback, and I do believe that sports is one of these um, one of these parts of American society right now that unites us all in terms of our love and our fandom and our um, and our ability to actually um, look at data and accept it as truth. Right? Nobody nobody actually questions the final scores of games anymore. I do, however, question polling. I think we've all need to start questioning polling. We've been questioning polling for the last eight, 10 years because it has, um, it has proven wrong in many local races, national races, and so on and so forth. So um, polling aside, I think that it, we will all, um, all be wise to take a deep breath and remember that um, Georgia's Republican Party is not quite sure who it is and who they represent and um, and what they want anymore, and and so um, I it's it's all um, it's all great um, great fodder for people like us to discuss this. But as you said at the beginning, Bill, there's a there's a certainly a long way away before a primary, let alone a general election. I I think that's a really good point. And and Tamar, we know that we've got to be cautious about what we make of polls in terms of how they predict the ultimate outcome of an election. But let me ask it from a different point of view. If you're, you know, Latham Sadler got a lot of attention as a brand new candidate for his ability to raise more than a million dollars in the first reporting period. People were impressed that this man coming out of nowhere was able to raise that kind of money. Gary Black's out there raising money. My question is whether or not this is predictive of the outcome of the Senate, of the, the primary race, what does this mean if you're Gary Black's team trying to go out there and raise money for his campaign? Sure. And and how it's going to change the behavior of these candidates as they're out on the trail. Are they really going to start hitting Herschel Walker much harder than they have been? Initially, Gary Black kind of did it in that nice guy way that only Gary Black can. Um, do we start to see sharper elbows out on the campaign trail, especially with Lathan Sadler and, and Kelvin Kin, uh, neither of whom were able to crack 3%. So I'll be interested in seeing how it changes their behavior. And you're right, Bill, this could change the, their ability to to raise money out on the trail. If, if a lot of donors think it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to be Herschel Walker, it might be harder to get big checks from those people. I'm also curious, Tia, and this is obviously all of this is pure speculation, but that's part of how we look at politics is speculating about outcomes. Um, 
you've got Nathan Deal already endorsing Gary Black, along with other uh, prominent uh, Georgia Republican leaders. Uh, Donald Trump, obviously, is Herschel Walker's number one uh, endorser. So, so I wonder if, if a poll like this empowers Trump to become even more adamant, more vociferous, more outspoken in the way that he supports Herschel Walker, and how that might uh, hurt uh, the Republican Party, which is already struggling to figure out the pro-Trump and the, and the not-so-pro-Trump forces moving forward, if that makes uh, sense to you. Does a Nathan Deal look and say, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, supporting Gary Black isn't quite as easy when Donald Trump's candidate is so far out front? Yeah, I think it's going to make it really interesting to see. It's going to make it very difficult for the Republican ticket to unify after the primary when they have to go up against Democrats going into November. You know, Brian Kemp can't campaign with Donald Trump. I mean, I guess he could if he wanted to, but he would look, you know, a little bit foolish because we see the way that Donald Trump talks about Brian Kemp. And so, yeah, I don't um, think Donald Trump is going to campaign with uh, Brian yeah, Kemp anytime. You know, so, I mean, how do you do that when your ticket is right? You know, the primary is the primary. And I think, you know, Nathan Deal might not necessarily all of a sudden start showing up with Donald Trump hand in hand, but he can just kind of go away. You know, folks who don't want to fall in line can kind of go away. But when there are divisions in the party, that can't just go away. And, um, you know, I think there, there are some real concerns there, how, how, they, how they look like a unified ticket. And if they're not unified, how is that going to translate to the voters they need to show up for them in November? Margaret and then Riley. Yeah, that, that's what defined Georgia on November 3rd, is that um, died-in-the-wool Republicans decided not to vote down ticket uniformly. People may or may not have voted for Trump, and they may or may not have voted for Purdue for Senate, and then they may have voted for Warnock for Senate as well. So party affiliation in a general election right now also seems to be a, a, um, a wavering concept um, among a lot of Georgia voters. And again, back to back to unified tickets and what the GOP, GOP thinks it is and isn't and what is Trumpism and what Trumpism isn't. Um, former Representative uh, Doug Collins has has backed Gary Black so far. So what does that say about mm -hmm. Trumpism and what does that say about unified messaging? I think that um, we're going to see a lot of interesting ways in which Georgia is going to keep leading the nation in both campaign tactics, um, campaign messaging and the future of the Republican Party. Riley? I just think the panelists hit it right on the head, right? Just because you have the support of Donald Trump doesn't mean you're going to have the, the support of the voters in terms of will they come out and vote for you, right? And, and Margaret brought up a great point that Doug Collins, who was the most Trump loyal diehard supporter throughout impeachment, through the Senate races, he backed Gary Black. And, you know, Gary Black does have this long, long history in Georgia and rural Georgia specifically. I think something to watch will be Trump's upcoming rally um, on the 25th in terms of who is there, right? Who are the politicians that are speaking? Who's sitting in the front row? I think that will really show what side people are on in the Republican Party. Tia? You're on mute, Tia. I think a big thing to be looking at as we look ahead to this rally and what 
how people are talking. It's one thing to back your candidate. It's another thing to bash another candidate, to make a contrast with another candidate, and to criticize your opposition. So Nathan Dill, Doug Collins, what I don't expect them to do is to go, or what I would be surprised, I guess, what would be telling is if they actually go after Herschel Walker. It's one thing for them to back their candidates, but are they going to go after Herschel Walker? Because that's what will put them in trouble with President Trump. Well, exactly. And that's the sort of thing that I was, I'm was i speculating about here, what, what all this means in terms of the Walker uh, uh, forces opposed to the Gary Black forces. Um, tomorrow, we already uh, mentioned that Gary Black uh, in his effort to drum up support, uh, held a news conference the other day at a shopping center in Buckhead where there had been another shooting, uh, which we've had far too many of in the city of Atlanta, to announce that he would support the Buckhead City movement. He thought it was time for Buckhead to declare itself independent from the uh, city of Atlanta. But um, your newspaper, the AJC, today released a poll which uh, of the mayor's race, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the question was also asked of uh, registered voters, uh, the study conducted by the University of Georgia, whether they supported an independent Buckhead. 58% uh, I think strongly op- opposed uh, that, but that doesn't mean this isn't heading for the legislature like a freight train coming down the track tomorrow. Exactly. And it's the legislature that's going to decide if this issue will be on the ballot in November 2022. Um, so there's plenty of times for, you know, there, there's plenty of ability for um, legislators, especially Republican legislators who aren't from Bucket City, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to toy around with this. Um. Riley, the um, it, it, to form a separate entity, a municipality, that by state uh, uh, law, you have to have a feasibility study that shows whether or not the entity you're creating is, is economically, financially viable. Now, we've never seen this before. We have never seen a de-annexation of a portion of a city from an existing city. So this is a unique situation. Nevertheless, uh, the people who support the Buckhead independence movement did, in fact, get Valdosta State to uh, do for them a feasibility study, which looks at the tax base, the predictable tax base of Buckhead residents as opposed to spending that the city would have to enact, take, take on. And what Valdosta State found was that, in fact, a new city could sport a $100 million surplus on its annual budget because the large tax base of, uh, of well-to-do people in Buckhead. But the report doesn't address the bigger question, which, of course, is how would a separation of Buckhead from Atlanta affect Atlanta's fiscal state? Riley? Well, absolutely. You know, that is one of the questions that isn't answered, right? And I think it's one of the important questions that people who are opposed to the secession are going to bring up. Um, I know Tamar mentioned that we're going to hear a lot of legislators that aren't from Buckhead City um, supporting, you know, the the movement for Buckhead to secede, right? And I think we're going to hear a lot of arguments as to why it would not be helpful for the city of Atlanta. Um, it's kind of this local control issue that always gets churned up during the legislature. So we'll have to see how it goes. And another Mark. thing to watch is the press. Another thing to watch is the precedent that this could set, and and that's something that a lot of opponents are bringing up. If you're going to allow portions of cities to start de-annexing, to start their own cities, 
that could lead to all sorts of, of madness down the line in, in any city if, if you know, there's a policy that comes through that, that people don't like. So what are the kind of unintended consequences of this? Margaret, you want to weigh in? Yeah, again, here on the coast, right? We, we've, had a, um, we've had a longer history, perhaps, than, than Atlanta has about um, new municipalities um, trying to start themselves up, unaffiliated parts of counties um, who, who um, are, are driven by, by public safety issues, by um, cost of living issues, by tax issues. And then suddenly, a few years later, when those unaffiliated areas start to realize that they need to pay for their own police forces, that they need to start paying for their own ambulance services and fire services, and even public schools, when the demographics change in those unaffiliated areas, everyone starts to realize, oh yeah, those metropolitan areas um, might have something uh, that we need again. And so there's there's lots of, of divorces that then become lots of conversations locally among among civic officials and municipal officials about rejoining um, rejoining the fold, in large part because if your tax base is low and nobody wants to to um, increase income taxes, you've got to find a way to pay for the fundamental things that we all need to work as a society, which are police, um, uh, emergency services, 911 operators, and public schools. Yeah, I, I just, think that there are... Go ahead. Go ahead. I just wanted to point out that Ooh. there is precedent that I don't want us to ignore or the listeners to ignore, and that's what happened down with the city of Stockbridge and the effort in 2017 and 2018 to de-annex a portion of that city to create the city of Eagle Landing. Now, it's a little bit different because Eagle Landing would have would have included parts of Stockbridge and some parts right. of unincorporated Henry County, but there was de-annexation of an existing city. That measure did come to a vote, and it failed, but a lot of the same issues being raised in the Buckhead issue were raised then. So I think it's just worth us making sure that we look at that because there, it was debated in a lot of the same language. Our AJC colleague, Leon Stafford, did a lot of articles that people are curious as to how that played out. Um, but money, not just now with people in Buckhead saying, we, we don't like that so much of our money is not staying in our neighborhood. That's a big issue. But we also can't ignore the money after the fact if de-annexation happens because, for example, Buckhead could be required to share some of the existing debt with the city of Atlanta. There could be a lot of money issues, carry over debt issues that perhaps proponents of cityhood are um, unaware of or just can't calculate for on the front end that would make a big impact. The, uh, all that said, uh, let me point out what the Valdosta State study shows. Um, Buckhead City would have about 100,000-plus residents. It would take in annual revenues uh, uh, projected of $203.5 million. $119 million would come from property tax. Um, right now, Buckhead accounts for about 20% of the city's population, but 40% of its assessed property values. And so you can see what a loss it would be to the city. At the same time, on the other side of the equation, uh, it's pretty clear that Buckhead could sustain itself fiscally, even as they uh, uh, claim uh, the people fighting for de-annexation that uh, they would pay police at a much higher rate than anybody else in the state, 70 plus thousand dollars a year. So this is going to be a fascinating story 
to watch unfold. And it's going to all tie in at the legislative session to Republicans who are emphasizing fighting crime in a city like Atlanta moving forward. So we'll watch it as it unfolds. Tomorrow, one last uh, note before we get to our final break. Yeah, the real main uh, headline of the poll that University of Georgia did for the AJC is the mayor's race. And it basically shows that with a little less than three months to go, the headline to me really is that more than 40 percent of Atlanta voters are undecided. Um, but at the same time, Kasim Reed and Felicia Moore are pretty well tied neck and neck. It's 23 and a half to 20. Uh, but that's within the margin of error. Nobody else gains much of anything. Antonio Brown, Sharon Gay, or Andre Dickens. Tamar. Yeah, and we have less than two months until the election, so these candidates have a lot of work to do. I mean, the 40% undecided figure has to be encouraging uh, if you're some of these candidates trying to get the name ID up, but at the same time, you know, time is running out, and uh, you know, the citizenry usually, this is a very high percentage of undecided voters at this point in, in the game. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and it might be too much of a gap for some of these other candidates to, to make up. You've got to look at the uh, underlying numbers, though, in this poll as well, uh, Riley. Twenty-two, only 22 percent of the people polled say they're undecided about Kasim Reed and his unfavorable. He's underwater by 10 points. He's viewed favorably by 34 percent, unfavorably by uh, 44 uh, percent. So, it, it, you know, he looks like he's got a lot of work to do if he's going to be able to uh, pull this out. Well, I think, you know, he has a lot of work to do, but the candidates are also in a position with the city where they can take advantage of some of the uncertainty going forward. Um, there was a number in there at the 53 percent, I think it was, had a, a, quote, dim view of the future of Atlanta. And I think it really is going to matter how the candidates respond and to the big issues, right, to the, the crime, the housing crisis coming out of the pandemic um, and the pandemic itself. I think there is opportunity. Um, for candidates to, you know, kind of shape their um, their policies going forward. And, and even Kasimer, you know, he can take advantage of that, too. Um, well, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, one thing this poll seems to suggest to me is um, that the pandemic is taking some people's minds off something like a mayor's race. There are too many other issues in the news. Plus, uh, it's hard. I'm not sure any of these candidates has really distinguished him or herself from one another in terms of where they stand on issues. And that's something we'll talk about as uh, Political Rewind continues toward, as you point out, tomorrow, the two plus months, not three plus months till the mayor's election. Let's take our final break of the show. When we come back, let's talk about some news down on the uh, coast in terms of the Ahmad Arbery uh, trial. Uh, this is Political Rewind. <laughs> Margaret Coker, there has been quite a bit of news since the beginning of September coming out of the coast uh, that relates to the Ahmad Arbery case. Um, I suppose, uh, and you've covered it very closely down there for The Current, uh, the big story, Jackie Johnson, uh, the former DA who lost re-election, now being indicted for, um, you'll tell us the exact language of the indictment, but for essentially interfering with um, the investigation of the Arbery deaths. Margaret? Yeah, there's, um, Glenn County has, has really been treading water in terms of law enforcement and judicial authorities uh, since 
since the Arbery killing on February 23rd, 2020. Um, the longtime DA, Jackie Johnson, as you mentioned, uh, she's, um, she's been uh, investigated by the GBI um, since, uh, since the GBI took over the, the case in May of 2020. Uh, she has been indicted on two charges, one a felony and one a misdemeanor. In, in the essence of, of what she is facing um, right now is that she, has, she, she favored her former investigator, who is one of the three suspects accused of killing Ahmed Arbery, um, and interference within the process of the law enforcement investigation that, that allegedly kept anyone from being arrested for 73 days um, after, after that horrible, um, horrible death. Now, um, he's, um, there's, that's not all that's happening in Glen County, though. The police chief, um, the former police chief um, there is, is also under indictment for um, violating his oath of office. And that's in reference to other police scene scandals before Arbery was killed. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a large amount of anxiety going on right now um, among local officials and the local police department about how in the world they're going to be able to keep law and order and keep public safety um, when, when the trial starts, given the fact that Brunswick and Glen County have become one of those um, synonyms with, with America's racial reckoning over the last 18 months. I was in, interested in a story you filed on the Jackie Johnson indictment uh, earlier in the month. You, you uh, uh, pull up a quote that Jackie Johnson gave to a local radio station down there, WIFO. The one mistake I made in this case, she told the radio station, was trying to be helpful to the police. I was trying to do a good deed and get them some help and guidance to help them do their job. It's now being used against me. And yet... Uh, Margaret, as you point out, it was 74 days before anyone was held accountable uh, by law enforcement for the Arbery shooting. Yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of knowledge, um, facts, and and you know private messaging um, and conversations that are still to be still that we don't know about what happened in those 73 days. What, um, what I do know from, from my longtime reporting now in, in Glen County is that uh, there is a lot, there's been a lot of dysfunction, a lot of politics of personality between many, many important individuals in that county. Jackie Johnson um, has had a, a, um, a checkered reputation for years, although she ran unopposed as the DA uh, until the last November elections. You know, when one of the suspects is um, was a was a senior investigator in your office, um, you know, there's there's nothing to do but recuse yourself when when um, the investigation kicks off. She says that's exactly what she did. Other people see it differently. So an indictment, um, we should all say, is is not an admission of guilt, nor does it imply guilt. And a jury will still have to um, weigh in on whether she did anything wrong. However, um, the voters of Glen County obviously um, thought she did something wrong, and they voted her out in a landslide um, last fall. Yeah, yeah. Um, Riley. Um, every news organization uh, that covers the state, GPB certainly, the AJC um, certainly down there at the current, is gearing up for the Arbery trial, which will be the biggest. I think, inarguably, the biggest trial the state will have seen in many years. Um, but now there are questions as to whether COVID is going to prevent the trial from starting uh, in the fall, I think October, as was planned. And, you know, the question is how long this drags out 
justice delayed is, you know, justice deferred. Yeah, and I know I think Margaret brought this up in pre-show conversations that the area is in the top for COVID spread. She can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, in terms of you're going to have national media there, not just local media, not just state media, regional media. There's going to be national media there. So there's going to be crowds of reporters, I'm sure crowds of people that want to come and watch the trial. I'm sure there will be protests. It's in terms of how is the county going to handle being thrust back into this national spotlight? And how is the state going to, you know, also respond to this? I'm sure we'll see issues brought up again in the state legislature of policing reform. We had that that bill about the um, abolishing um, departments, police departments, right, local to police departments. So it it could potentially shape um, a, a, a future going forward for Georgia politics. It's going to be a big deal. Uh, by the way, Tia, justice delayed is justice denied. Let me get that right before we end the show, Tia. I just want to say I feel like there's a way to try to move forward with the trial safely if the folks in charge and work with public health you know, officials to do so. And I think that should be paramount. But unfortunately, you know, in Georgia, their hands may be tied in certain ways. But, you know, there's ways to do social distancing and limit capacity and implement video and audio to help improve safety and let the trial go forward so that you're not denying justice, but you're also not exposing people to a deadly virus. Tomorrow, we're going to get down to the end of the show, but I want to give you a chance to weigh in. Sure. And I have not been following this as closely as as many of my colleagues, but I'm, I'd be curious to know if, if the court would ever be willing to go virtual on a case uh, w- with such magnitude. Margaret, that's a great question. We saw George Floyd. There, there were great precautions taken in that case. Yeah, and and there's lots of discussions um, underway right now. One of the discussions is that you would have um, you would have uh, spectators who sit um, well outside the courtroom in in an empty stadium, for example, open air stadium. And you know, in terms of policing and public safety, um, the Glen County Police Department is 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 looking for all hands from from neighboring counties and and other jurisdictions just to help beef up the numbers in order to keep people safe. Margaret Coker, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thank you for joining us uh, from down there in Savannah. Tia Mitchell, a pleasure to have you from Washington. Tamar Hallerman, Riley Bunch, thank you both for a terrific conversation today. Uh, We're back again tomorrow. As I said, uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio will be here to talk to us about what he's seeing happening with COVID-19 in Georgia and really across the country. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you're inside. The virus is still raging. And please tell friends who haven't been vaccinated, it's really time to do it for all of our sakes. Take care, everybody.